Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our study through God's Word. Now, on today's podcast, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go ahead and open that up to chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Now, we would love for you to come and worship with us in person. And if you're here in Northwest Arkansas, know that we would just love to meet you and to talk and to share. We're, we meet at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, 1030 on Sunday mornings. And if you have any questions at all, you can email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or check out our website at calvaryfayetteville.com. Now again, Pastor Kirk is continuing our series in the book of Philippians with a message entitled, Living Between a Rock and a Hard Place, from chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Let's listen together. Let's focus our attention on, on God's Word. Now we studied last week how that God works through adversity in our lives. That uh, I know we would all like to have everything go smoothly in our families, in our work, in our daily lives, whatever that means to us, whatever context, but God works through adversity, sometimes even pain and suffering and persecution. And he uses these things to advance his cause. And his cause is for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ in power to the conversion of lost souls and the strengthening of his people. If you remember, we focused especially on verse 12 last week. I believe it'll be on the screen. Uh, where Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what had happened to Paul was a great deal of hardship. In fact, uh, if you go back to the book of Acts, the last uh, five or uh, six chapters of the book of Acts deals with Paul's uh, uh, attempt uh, to go back to Jerusalem there to preach. He was falsely accused. He was imprisoned. He had to be uh, shifted out of Jerusalem because there were those who had sworn an oath to kill him and had even said, we will not eat or drink until we do. And so he uh, was two years in Caesarea and, and the shipwreck. In fact, we find in the book of 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 11, where Paul enumerates all these different things that he, he has experienced in the way of hardship being an apostle. He talked about the beatings that he experienced, not only with whips, but also with rods. He talked about his various shipwrecks. He said, I was stoned and left for dead uh, in Galatia. All these different things, not only the hardships from the uh, Orthodox Jews that considered him a turncoat to Judaism, but also hardship from those who claimed the name of Christ who, who tried to undermine his apostleship. And so he said, on top of all of that, I bear the burden for the Lord's churches. I carry you on my heart. I carry you in my mind. I'm praying for you constantly. And even as he writes this letter to the Philippians, he is in his second year of imprisonment in Rome. 
And he's already told us he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He doesn't know if it's going to turn out for his deliverance out of prison and freedom or if he will have his life taken from him. Well, we know from reading the rest of the story that actually he does get set free from this imprisonment. And he is uh, free for about another five or so years. And then he is back in a Roman prison again for the second time. And that one is going to result in his having his head removed from his torso. That will be the end of the road for the Apostle Paul. But not the end of the value of his ministry. We still benefit from it today. Amen. We've got these letters. We have his words as he is uh, inspired of the Lord to write them. Now, Paul says there's two ways in particular, in particular, that his imprisonment has advanced the gospel. Verse 13 of chapter 1 tells us that it gave him witness to the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard. This is, uh, this is Caesar's elite Guards. It's the highest you can go uh, of a Roman soldier then to be selected for the Praetorian Guard. Now, he is not chained to a wall in a dungeon in Rome. He is allowed to live in a rented household, but he is under house arrest at his own expense. But part of what comes with that is 24 hours a day he is chained to a guard. And those guards take four to six hour shifts. And so for two years, this has been going on. And so basically what he's saying is, I could have never gotten a hearing with these guards, with these elite soldiers, but God has chained them to me for two years. And he's witness to them. And the gospel has spread even into Caesar's household because some of these soldiers have gotten saved. And they, in their shift of duties, even in the emperor's household, are sharing the gospel there. So it has advanced the gospel. And not only that, but in verse 14, he says, my presence here and my uh, uh, willingness to undergo whatever God sends my way has given uh, encouragement, has given strength, has given boldness to others who are members of the Lord's church, who are preaching the gospel, not only here in Rome, but even beyond that. And basically he's saying that, that these uh, adversities, these problems, have served as an advance guard that's gone ahead and paved the way for the spread of the gospel. And from that message last week, we took two lessons in particular. Number one, we see the sovereignty of God, the unmistakable sovereignty of God at work in this man's life. And guess what? You can see it at work in your life too, if you'll be honest with yourself. You see, the setbacks of life are really setups for God to do His work. Stumbling blocks end up being stepping stones. God's worst is better than the devil's best. Even disappointments turn out to be divine appointments for God to work. And as we've said so many times, that pain 
is a platform for you and me. Pain is our platform. Every person who wants to be recognized running for office has a platform on which they run. Well, I'll tell you, pain is the Christian's platform. It deepens our worship. It expands our witness. And it purifies our works and our motivations. Pain is a friend. It advances the gospel in our lives. It's so interesting that Paul did not write, woe is me, God has forgotten me here. He did not say, Satan has won a victory in my life. He did not say, my ministry must be over. He says, I'm here in this house arrest, chained to a guard, and God is just expanding the gospel. So we see the unmistakable sovereignty of God. We also saw in that passage that we are challenged to become people of a singular passion for Christ. A singular passion for Christ and his cause. Folks, you and I have too many passions in life. You and I have too many interests in life. You and I have too many irons in the fire. And it's only when we focus in like a laser beam on Christ and his cause and live for that, that we find that all these things truly work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now I said all that, to say this. That's the context for the scripture we're about to read in Philippians chapter 1 as Paul explains what it means to have a singular passion for Christ. I take up reading. At the end of verse 18, he says that Christ is being preached and in that I rejoice. And the end of verse 18 continues with these words, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Understand when he says that I have this confidence about my deliverance, he is not saying I have confidence that I'm going to be set free, that everything's going to turn out as as you would want it to necessarily. He said whether by living or dying, either way I'm delivered. Either way, this is God's best for my life. Now, listen especially beginning in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. What an amazing, what an amazing, what a convicting passage of Scripture. It is amazing in its truthfulness. Paul is not exaggerating here. He's not trying to be dramatic. He was not a drama queen or even a drama king. It is amazing in its confidence. It is amazing in its tenderness and affection. He loves these people he's writing to as he loves all of the churches. What a challenge for you and me. It's amazing in its example of what it means, now follow me, to surrender to the will and the purposes of God. How a man can do that in a very real and practical way. And hopefully, prayerfully, these verses not only are the testimony of the Apostle Paul, but they are the testimony of some of you here. And perhaps it will become the testimony of some of you before this service is over. So let's attempt to break it down. We might fully understand it, apply it to our lives. I believe we will be the better for it, and we will see God work in much greater ways in our lives and in our church. I have four points to share with you. Uh, it does not surprise you that the points begin with the letter P. This message today is brought to you by the letter P. All right? Number one, Paul's priority. Paul's priority. Now, let me pause for just a minute and give you an English lesson. The word priority came into the English language sometime in the 15th century in the 1400s. It comes from the word prior, which means that which comes before, that which leads the way. So we get the English word priority. And for 500 years, for 500 years, it is never spoken it is never used, it is never written in the plural. It is not until the 1900s that the word priorities, plural, shows up. Now what does that say? It says that in the last hundred years or so, our lives have gotten quite watered down. Instead of understanding what is the priority in life, what should be your priority in life and mine, has gotten mixed up with a lot of other things that we have made priorities. 
And so now you almost never hear anyone use the word priority in the singular. If you hear even pastors preaching, they talk about the priorities of life. And can I say this to you? That if everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. If there are multiple things that hold equal authority and prestige and place in your life, and for most of us that's very true. As I said, we have too many interests. We have too many irons in the fire. We have too many balls in the air that we're juggling. I would, I would give you another analogy if I could think of another one. But you get the idea, I hope, that we've got too many priorities when the Bible tells us that there's only one thing that ought to be a priority, and Paul nails it in the first seven words of verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. Or as it is in the Greek, even fewer words. For me, to live Christ. For me to live Christ. Christ was Paul's sum and substance of his entire existence. Christ is his alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Christ is the center of his life, not the circumference of his life, not on the fringes. He writes about Christ being his foundation, his chief cornerstone, not only the foundation that gives stability, the chief cornerstone that gives alignment and direction, but he is also the pinnacle, the capstone of everything. Christ is the rudder of his ship and the anchor that holds it fast, holds it fast. Folks, listen to me now for just a minute. You hear that and you say, yes, but he was an apostle. He is Mr. Super Christian. My friend, what I'm saying to you is that is true Christianity. And anything less than that we need to be careful for because it may not save our souls. This is what it means to be born again. It's what it means when your life has been changed by the Lord and not just changed by the Lord, but when you have been raised from the dead of your sin and given life in the Lord. For me to live Christ He's saying that Christ is the source of his life. Christ is the subject of his life. Christ is the standard of his life by which he measures everything. Christ is the song of his life. He was singing that song with Silas in the Philippian jail when he was there incarcerated and God brought deliverance and established this church he's now writing to. It was his song in the night. Christ is the satisfaction of his life. Christ 
is the strength of his life. That is Paul's priority. Number two, notice Paul's prophet. Prophet. P-R-O-F-I-T. Not a person, not a preacher of God's word, but God's prophet. And to die is what? Is what? Gain. It's not loss. If I die in this prison, if they remove my head from me now in this imprisonment in Rome, whatever happens to me, to die is payday. To die is gain. What do I gain? I gain everything I have a hope for. I will see Jesus Christ. I saw a, a really touching picture on Facebook. You can find wonderful things on Facebook, right? And all of it's true. And it was a painting somebody did of your first day in heaven. And it shows all these families as they are grabbing on to their loved ones that have gone on before, you know, a, a, a child grabbing on to a grandparent and, and a husband holding on to a wife and, and what it will be like the moment you get to glory and experience payday and experience gain. And I'm thinking, they got it all wrong. Yes. It will be glory to see our loved ones. But it will be glorious to see Jesus Christ for the first time. And you are going to be so enraptured with him if you are a child of God. Your loved ones, by the way, are going to be enraptured with him too. Paul's prophet and to die is gain. When Christ is our reason for living, when he is the singular passion of our lives, death is not a defeat, it is a victory. Death does not hold fear. It's not the end of all life. It's the beginning of our best life. It is the promised investment of our lives in Christ and his cause. Whatever we have suffered, whatever we have endured, whatever we have persevered through, the day of our death is the payoff. It's when we begin to experience and where we begin to experience the profit of a life invested in what is truly important, not all those other balls you're trying to juggle. Not all those other irons you have in the fire. You're going to forget them so fast. They've been nothing in many ways but encumbrances to your life while you're here. Have you ever heard of John Rogers? John Rogers, he was a pastor in the turbulent years of the 16th century, the 1500s. That was during what was known as the Protestant Reformation. He was the first of 284 people to be killed by Mary I of England. You may know her best as Bloody Mary. She was a Catholic. She persecuted Protestants, evangelicals, 
John Rogers was the first. John Rogers was instrumental in the writing and publication of what came to be known as the Matthew Bible, which was published in 1537 during the reign of King Henry VIII, before Mary came to the throne. This Matthew Bible, that was the name. He, was, he carried a pseudonym because of the threats to his life. And so he carried that name. The Matthew Bible is actually a combination of William Tyndale's New Testament. You recognize that name. The first to translate the New Testament into the English language and also parts of the Old Testament. And when Tyndale was martyred in 1536, Rogers finished uh, Tyndale's work and made this translation available. In 1553, Rogers was arrested and imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Also, his crime was to bring the English Bible to the English people so people in the pew like yourself could read it for themselves instead of hearing it spoken in Latin in a Catholic mass and them never know what's going on or what God's Word says. In January of 1554, after some six months in prison, he was sentenced to death. And he awaited and he met his death cheerfully. Cheerfully? How could he do that? Because to die is gain. When Christ is your singular passion and purpose for living, he requested one brief meeting with his wife, and it was denied him. He was the father of 11 children. The 11th he had never seen because she was born while he was in prison, incarcerated. Before his execution, he was offered a pardon if he would just recant his views and teachings, but he refused. And he was burned alive at the stake on February the 4th, 1555 in Smithfield. That's a part of London. Here is the word-for-word -word description of Roger's martyrdom taken directly from Fox's book of martyrs, chapter 16. Listen to these words. Part of the language will be a little bit stilted because of the time in which it was written. When the time came that he should be brought out of Newgate Prison to Smithfield, the place of his execution, Mr. Woodruff, one of the sheriffs, first came to Mr. Rogers and asked him if he would revoke his abominable doctrine and the evil opinion of the sacrament of the altar. Mr. Rogers answered, that which I have preached I will seal with my blood. Then Mr. Woodruff said, thou art a heretic. That shall be known, said Mr. Rogers, at the day of judgment. In other words, we'll wait to see what God says about that. Well, said Mr. Woodruff, I will never pray for thee, but I will pray for you, said Mr. Rogers. And so was brought the same day, the 4th of February, by the sheriffs towards Smithfield 
as he was saying on the way, Psalm 51, by the way. All the people wonderfully rejoicing at his constancy with great praises and thanks to God for the same. And there in the presence of Mr. Rochester, comptroller of the Queen's household, Sir Richard Southwell, both the sheriffs, and a great number of people, he was burnt to ashes, washing his hands, leaning forward and welcoming and washing his hands in the flame as he was burning. A little before his burning, his pardon was brought if he would have recanted, but he utterly refused it. He was the first martyr of all the blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time that gave the first adventure upon the fire. His wife and children, being 11 in number, 10 able to go and one sucking at her breast, met him by the way as he went towards Smithfield. This sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood could nothing move him but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of the gospel of Christ. For me to live Christ, to die is gain. How can a person face death so unswervingly, so fearlessly, so joyfully, only when to live is Christ, is to die such gain? To live for anything else, my friend, is a loss. It's a loss. Number three, Paul's perplexity. Paul's perplexity. Even in the midst of all of this, notice what he says, verse 22 and 23. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. If it's up to me, I, I cannot tell you which one I would choose. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. If left to Paul, to die would be the best of all options. But that choice was not his to make. He bowed to the sovereignty of God. He realized that his days, like ours, are in God's hands, not his own. But notice that for Paul, even the lesser good, not to die, would be to remain alive. The lesser good would be to live longer. But even that lesser good would result in fruitful labor. In other words, God, if I live, is going to continue bearing fruit because I'm not going to cease my ministry. 
Whatever happened, life or death, God wins. God's word and work continues to advance. Notice his description. Between the two, I am, I am hard-pressed. That, that's describing uh, a road that's getting narrower and narrower it goes through, as it goes through a canyon. And it gets so narrow that you're, that you're pressed in on both sides. It's where we get our expression between a rock and a hard place. Have you ever been between a rock and a hard place? Are you there today? Understand, it's by God's design. God is doing something. You hard-pressed in your job, in your work. You can hardly stand it. You don't know if you can bear another day. God is at work. You are hard-pressed by physical things, financial things. This means to be hemmed in. It means to be walking a very narrow road that gets narrower. That's what he says. For me to decide between life or death, you know, it's this. It's between a rock and a hard place. He said, I have a desire, a desire to depart. Now, that's a very interesting use of the word. Because the Greek word here is almost exclusively, now follow me, translated lust throughout the New Testament. Always used in a very negative context, a very earthy, sensual way. The lust of the flesh. And he's saying here, and he uses the same word, I have a desire, my lust is to go and be with the Lord. That's what I desire. That's the driving passion of my heart. My desire is to depart. It means to set sail. It means for the prison door to swing open. It means to leave the field of battle after a successful campaign. It means to have all the confusing knots of your life, the things that you can't understand, to suddenly, for those knots to go away and everything make sense. I'm ready to depart this world, to loose, to be set free. It means to unhitch the team that's been working, pulling uh, the plow in the field, and to depart, to leave the field, to go to the barn, to be nourished and to rest. He said, that would be far better. Actually, he says, that is very much better. If, if Paul had written this out for, an, for a, a proofreader today, uh, what do you call those people? Editors. For an editor today in an article or writing a book, and he were to say, for that is far very much better, someone would correct his language. But that's what he says here. It is so much better, I can't even explain it. That's Paul's perplexity. Stay, go. Well, if it's up to me, that's tough. Number four, and you have the message, Paul's persuasion. Paul's persuasion, verse 24 through 26. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account and convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Now, understand, he didn't know. The verdict was not in yet. 
He is speaking by faith. He is giving encouraging words to these Philippians. For I know uh, that, your prog- uh, that if I remain and continue in the flesh, it'll be for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If I get out of here, I'm coming to you again, and understand it's only so that we might glorify God even further. You know what Paul is saying here? You know what he was convinced of? You know what he was persuaded by? I'll give you another figure of speech. Not only was he between a rock and a hard place, but he's basically saying here, hey, heads I win, tails I win. Either way, I can't lose. Nowhere in life is tossing a coin going to turn out that way for you. This world cannot offer you a heads I win, tails I win scenario. But God does. Paul's willingness to die to himself as Jesus had called his followers to do, to take up a cross and follow me. This is not just for his benefit, it's for the benefit of others. Now listen, if you are still here and still breathing and still alive, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take for granted, that's all of you. There's a couple of you I put to sleep, but I don't think you're dead. If you are still drawing air, if your heart is still beating, If you're still taking up space in this life, listen to me, it is for a reason. It's for a reason. And it's not about you. It's for the benefit of others. That's what it means to live with a singular passion for the cause of Christ. That's what it means to really be a Christian. It's what mothers do for their children. It's what fathers do for their families. It's what uh, what elders do for their churches. We live our lives for others. And Paul is saying, if I go on breathing and living, it is to live for people like you there in Philippi and other places where I may be able to preach even yet. As long as God has left you here, there is something for you to do. Let's be found doing the work of God so long as we live. Let's reduce our priorities to the singular, to the priority of God in our lives and serving Him. He's living for the progress and joy in the faith so that others will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Now close up your Bibles. If you're keeping any kind of a note, I want you to keep that open because I want you to write one more thing. But kind of otherwise, you know, get yourself all settled. We're getting ready to dismiss in just a minute. But look this way. Because this is where I'm asking every single one of you to respond. I'm asking every single one of you 
to respond to this message. It's not going to be to come to this altar unless God just leads you here. It's going to be to decide right where you sit this moment. Understand this truth. We are not ready to really live until we are ready to die. Did you hear that? You're not ready to really live until you are ready to die. And when you are ready to die, and death no longer holds any fear for you, you know that the best day of your life or the day you draw your last breath here, when you are really ready to die, because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for you, it will give you such freedom to live like you've never known before. And that's why Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. Here's what I want you to write. For me to live is blank. For me to live is blank. And I want you to fill in the blank. Now, be honest. Don't give the church answer because you're in church. I'm asking you, what person or thing in life brings you your greatest joy? What person or thing in life brings you your greatest joy? Is it your child? Is it your grandchild? Is it your job or your career? Is it your hobby, your favorite sport or whatever it is? What does your mind go to in times of rest and quiet? What do you think about when something else is not demanding your attention? Where does your mind go? Who or what gets the best, the first of your finances? Now I'm meddling. If God were to just grant you one wish today, what would it be? Who are you most driven to please with your life? What activity is the most important to you? What gets the first priority of your time and attention? What is it that's so important you're going to reschedule everything else around it? Because you're never going to miss it, whatever it is. 
I'm just trying to help you figure out what is your real priority in life. For to me, to live is. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of it on this Father's Day. Father, forgive us for having so many priorities in life. So many things that we give a place of prominence in our lives and give importance to, and all it does is just water down everything else. Most of all, it waters down our love and devotion to you. Later in this letter, Paul is going to say, this one thing I do. Help us to live with such a priority and let it be you. Father, show us that all of our relationships in life, even the most dear, are going to be so fragile and potentially broken when you don't hold first place in our lives. Father, show us that the labor of our hands is going to be fleeting and will never bring satisfaction and joy until you are on the throne of our hearts. Father, show us that this world is not going to be changed by half-hearted believers, but only by those who have made you the single passion of their lives. May that be true about us for the days we have left. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.